0: Welcome to The Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest today is Craig Dawson. Co founder and CEO of Retail Lockbox. Founded in 1994, Retail Lockbox offers a wide variety of payment services as well as document management services. Clients are both in the public and private sectors, including healthcare, telecommunications, utilities, insurance, property management, and nonprofits. Craig has an impressive record of service to our Seattle community, serving on numerous boards, including as past chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco Seattle Branch Board, the Washington Roundtable, which he now chairs, the Bold Initiative, the University of Washington Consulting and Business Development Center, the Veneer Scholars Resource Council, and also as past president of TABOR 100, a nonprofit organization which focuses on creating initiatives for Black-owned businesses. He is a Seattle native and a University of Washington alum. Craig, welcome to the Leadership Playbook. It's great to have you here. It's a great privilege for us to have you joining us today in this show. So first thing, what is Retail Lockbox? Dean Phillips, Joe, thanks for having me here today. I'm excited
1: to be talking to your uh, Seattle University environment. So thanks for having me. Retail Lockbox, we're a payment processing company. So the actual term Retail Lockbox was coined and it's an industry standard term it was coined back in the 1940s when someone would go and and go to their local retailer and they charge stuff through the month. They'd get a bill sent to them and they'd actually go to the store and there'd be a little box on the wall and on that box there'd be a slit in the top and there'd be a little lock on that box and then they would take their payment coupon that they got in the mail their invoice and then they'd put their check with it and they'd drop it in that little slot in the top of the box and that was called a, a retail lockbox. So in today's terms, retail lockbox is a payment processing organization like you said we process for utilities, uh, nonprofits, corporations, anyone that has a large number of incoming receivables, taxing authorities, those kinds of things. And so what we do is, our base business is check processing. So I know a lot of your your group, maybe the millennials, the students, may not even have checkbooks, but there's still a lot of checks being written in the world today. And what we do is we process those checks that come in. All of our clients have their own PO box. We go to the mailbox each day. We bring back that work. We have machines that open mail at. 10,000 pieces an hour. We read electronically the payment coupon that comes in, say with your utility bill, we read the check electronically, Uh, we read the amount that's in the courtesy amount box, the legal legal line, and then we process that payment for whatever information is on that coupon that comes in. So typically your account number and how much you owe, there's a little series of numbers on the bottom of, of your coupon that comes in, and that's what we read, and then we send our clients an electronic file, telling them who paid how much, and then we give them digital images of those transactions. Second big part of our business is electronics business. So we build a payment portal. We typically try to build a payment portal alongside the paper-based product for each of our clients. So when you go to their website and you wanna make a payment, you click on maybe a Pay Now button or a link, and that will take you to uh, a Vaxia site that we've built for that client. It allows you to pay your bill with credit card or an e-check. And then basically the same process that payment will go through, we deposit the money directly into our client's bank account, and then we send them a a payment file so they can upload to their their accounts receivable system. And then, like you said, Joe, we also have a big business around document imaging. Uh, On the check side, we're going to process about 1.5 million check payments a month. We scan about 5 million documents a month, and that we're going to deposit about $6 billion a year for our
0: clients on an annual basis. Wow. So you have the inside story on the payment system. I'm just curious, during this COVID era, have you seen any habits change in terms of how customers are using checks, cash, whatever?
1: Well, I think initially we saw check volume down around 10 to 15%. And that was, you know, a lot of people were getting sort of forbearance. They didn't maybe have to pay their utility bill for a couple months. They didn't maybe have to pay their mortgage bill. They didn't have to pay their credit card bill. So we saw a volume decline. And people were obviously out of work, right? So people may not have had money to pay their bills. So we saw that that volume decline pretty quickly right away. We saw though a pretty big bounce back. People sort of got back to work. We also saw lots of our customers one, have questions about whether we were going to actually be working. We were an essential business, so we never stopped working. We always were depositing money into our client's bank account so they could stay in business even though their staff was at home. But we did see a lot of new customers come on board. So a lot of folks, since their team members were at home, they didn't have the ability to go to the post office box or they didn't have the ability to get the mail that was coming in and to be able to process their incoming receivables so actually this year we saw the largest growth in number of new customers that we've seen in our 27 year history we had that this year and then we saw lots of customers want to go online customers that started to want to really have that ability to have their customers pay their bills online what if mail stopped what if You know, we weren't able to go to the post office. What if everyone in our organization got COVID? You know, those are the kind of questions that we were asking. And we were saying, hey, that's great, but you can always have a way to pay bills 24 seven, get one of our pay stations, and you can come in and uh, have your customers pay their bills.
0: Good to hear that you've had a positive experience in terms of new clients with COVID. So let me ask another pandemic related question. You know, early on in the pandemic, things like hiring and maintaining the culture are not so problematic for any business organization. But as it's dragged on and become months and months, you start having hiring to do. You've got to worry about the company culture. How has retail lockbox been handling these and other types of challenges you face with the COVID environment? Well, I
1: think, first of all, we've been lucky. I mean, lots of businesses have suffered major losses during COVID, our business fortunately, I was positioned to take advantage of COVID in the sense that people still need to um, have money to run their businesses. That's the lifeblood. We were deemed an essential business, so we never stopped working when the state shut down. Some of the state agencies are our our customers, and certainly lots of the governmental entities are our customers, and they got to keep going. And so what we did was we just started to follow all the guidelines associated with the CDC and local county guidelines and city guidelines, and we taught people how to wash their hands. We were already wearing gloves to handle a lot of our work. So a lot of folks weren't able to get gloves because they weren't using them before. So our vendors were able to provide those for us. We actually built masks. We went out to local seamstresses and contracted with them to manufacture masks for us because it was very difficult to get that PPE. Those those masks were being used by the medical environment. So we basically did everything. We sent of our workforce home, lots of folks had 97% of their folks working from home. But when you're handling 1.5 million envelopes a month and 5 million pages of of paper, you can't really do that from home. You have to be able to actually handle that that work. And we have obviously big machines that do that. So we just wanted to make sure our team was safe. We didn't have a case of COVID within our organization until late October. And that's because we were wearing masks, we were wearing gloves, kept a safe distance from each other when talking about issues that, that came up during the day. We basically met with a team starting almost daily on COVID updates, hey, here's what we need to do. And our team really sort of stuck with the plan of the program. And so it really allowed us to keep our folks safe. We've been growing, so we've needed to hire. So that hiring took the form of Zoom calls <laughs> to begin with. And then once we got ready to hire folks, we brought them in for those final interviews A lot of folks, you know, in our business, we have from entry-level jobs all the way up through programmers, program managers. So the highest level of jobs for pay and the lowest level of jobs for pay. Lots of folks, you know, as we interviewed some programmers, they were like, as soon as we said, hey, we want you to come into work, they were like, hung up the phone. So they were were definitely not coming in. Obviously, folks that were in our production jobs knew they had to come in, and, and some folks came in for a few days and thought it was too dangerous and weren't able to stay. But we've had a lot of success bringing folks in and ingraining them into our culture. Like I said, we sent 13% of our workforce home. Those folks have learned how to work from home and be successful in doing that. And then the other 87% of us that come in every day have learned how to stay safe in in the office. But it's been easier for us to engender our corporate culture because we do have people still coming into work.
0: So from what you can tell at this point, do you think there's going to be any impact on how Retail Lockbox does business as a result of the experiences you've had in COVID-19? Post-COVID, anything going to be new because of COVID? Oh, well,
1: I think definitely. First, I think we've accelerated the move to electronic payment processing so that'll continue to be a big wave. We've invested quite a bit in, in new products and services in that area. Certainly, our workers that are working from home, all those folks are not going to come back and be working in the office regularly each and every day. Hopefully, you know we'll get them in one or two days a week, but there's definitely going to be a hybrid model around that. We've toyed with being able to keep payments out from home and working from home, but there's you know, some danger in that and that we can't keep our privacy and security to the level that we need to at this point. And then, you know, just from a technology standpoint, we continue to invest in technology to make our processes more robust and also to uh, make them faster and more efficient and less error prone. So we make made pretty significant investments here in, in new opening technology that we've been using, but we're buying more of that and more in technology in the way of, I guess you'd say artificial intelligence in the way that we read electronically the payment information that comes in on paper, OCR and optical character recognition, ICR, additional other types of character recognition that
0: we're intelligent character recognition that we're we're employing to read data. So in the middle of the pandemic, we also had the Black Lives Matter movement and it's caused many companies to re-examine how they do business with uh, BIPOC communities. How's that been for Retail Lockbox? Have, have you had made any changes with the company in terms of uh, responding to BLM?
1: Mm-hmm. We've not made a lot of changes because Retail Lockbox was already a diverse, a pretty diverse company, obviously run by a black business owner. And so we know that people of color tend to hire more people of color. They tend to hire people that look like them. So our workforce today is about 13% black that's not much different than it was when these things started, when the George Floyd shooting this summer really brought heightened attention to Black Lives Matter and to the, the plight of black Washingtonians. So, you know, I just call it sort of a United Nations. If you come into our facility and I know, Joe, you've been here and you've seen our team members. I mean, we have all races here. We have all gender types and we're, we're welcoming of those people in our environment. We actually want that. We know that. Having a diverse workforce makes us better as we go forward. We can make better decisions. So one of the things we did look at, though, was, you know, we knew what our hiring was. We knew where we were as related to what our mix of employees was ethnically. We continue to talk about making sure that we were able to go out and recruit black people. And then we also wanted to know what was our buying patterns. That's something we didn't, we weren't tracking closely. Are we buying from black firms? And we found out happily that we were buying from black firms. We wanted to do more of that, but we looked at what we were buying and we felt like, hey, can we buy more? And then we've identified additional black firms to buy from. So before we were like buying computers from CDW and I went to our our IT group and I said, hey, you know, we've got this commitment now to buy from black firms, to have more of our spend be from black businesses what's going on with buying computers. I've got this company that, you know, sells the same Dell computers that we buy from C D W. And our team immediately said, No, no. <laughs> we've consolidated our buying. We're only we we wanna buy from this one firm and we've got a great relationship with C D W. And I said, Well, that's great, but I think you might realize that I'm the CEO and pretty much saying no to me is not going to work. And so here's a firm that I want you guys to consider buying from. You know, we have these folks working from home now and we have a need to provide laptops and and desktop computers. So in this next buy, let's do a, a cost comparison. If the cost is the same or a little bit different, we're going to buy from this local black firm. And so. Once the team understood that, understood the commitment, they were happy to comply with that. And so we ended up starting a new relationship with a black firm to buy our computers from, which we're, you know, we have a monthly buy of computers. So that made a lot of sense. And we want to continue to grow that and look at other, you know, operational spends that we can spend with black businesses, because (laughs) why buy from these huge mammoth corporations that maybe don't have the best interest in our local economy in mind. And also, we want to support black businesses. That's where generational wealth is created.
0: Good example, Kirk. Thanks. So let's switch gears a little bit. And let me ask you the question that, as the dean of the business school, I have to ask on behalf of all my students, which is, what advice would you give to college graduates these days, especially in this pandemic period? In other words, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated from uw that you want to pass on well i think
1: patience is sort of the first thing i mean i think when you're just getting out of college you don't have a lot of patience you're looking to start your career you want to get going you gotta want to start running but you know unfortunately this pandemic has slowed a lot of stuff down but this too shall pass we obviously the u.s has gone through many business cycles we've had pandemics before and in 1918 and uh, you know we came out with the roaring 20s so this will pass you know i'm assuming that if you're graduating especially if you're graduating from the business school you've got a highly valuable skill set i'd want to make sure if i was a recent college graduate that that skill set is aligned with the current trends that are going to make you readily employable going into the future in the in a workplace of 2021 and beyond i think that's important some of the things I wish that I knew knew when I graduated that I know now is to save early and often. Typically, you're going to have a 401k or an IRA program within your work. Definitely join that and put as much money away as possible and get the match fund that you're getting from the firm that you're working with. But also just grow your, your nest egg, grow your rainy day fund, make it an automatic savings and draft that into a separate brokerage account or savings account. And then I would put that money into an S&P 500 and forget about it and then just make the return that the economy as a whole is making. But I think that's super important as you try to build for the future. It, it's a long time. When I graduated from college, I thought I was so old. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so old now. But I didn't really realize how young I was and how much runway I had to go, 30 or 40 years in, in the work world. So you've got a long time. And the power of compound interest is probably the greatest, the greatest tool in the world. Compounding just in general is a great tool, but compound interest is probably the one one's greatest tools for wealth creation. And so starting early, starting often, putting as much away as possible. There's lots of great things out there today. Robinhood, there's those tools that where you buy stuff, it, it rounds up and, and saves that money. So you've got way better tools than we had when, when I was growing up. So I, I would say that those are some of the things that I would really think about saving for the future and, and
0: growing your, your nest egg. It will be important. And like you said, the sooner you get started on that, the better, right? Absolutely. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So under your leadership, Retail Lockbox has become one of the few black-owned businesses that has been able to grow in size and scale. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced in making that happen and the lessons you learned along the way that you've personally used to apply back into the organization and make it a more diverse and inclusive business?
1: Sure. So growing Retail Lockbox and being you know, one of a few black businesses that have grown to a fairly significant size. You know, I always wanted to run my own business. So when I was, I don't know, four years old, I was thinking about running a business. And as I grew up, I thought about different business ideas. You know, I thought about maybe a little toaster that sat there and I saw mail coming in through a mailbox, but I thought maybe you get your mail uh, somehow electronically comes through a sort of maybe a toaster device, you know, email now. And my dad was blind. And so, he used to get these books on tape from Community Services for the Blind and those books on tape. I thought, wow, why are only blind people can listen? I don't mind reading, but I'd love to be able to just listen to these books. And so I thought maybe audio books would be something that would catch on. And, And, you know, those are two things I did. And I didn't, I didn't invent any of those things or capitalize, but those are things I was thinking about. And so I think just initially thinking about being able to run a business and what that might be like, I decided that you know, I needed to go and work for a major corporation. So I spent the first 10 years of my career working for a major corporation. I wanted to understand about business, how it gets done. I had a great opportunity to work for a company called Unisys, Burroughs Corporation at the time was a major mainframe computer company. And today there's not really many mainframes out there, but it was the predecessor to, you know, Intel, Microsoft. And so they had great sales training. And I think in order to run a business, you have to be a great salesperson, you have to be able to sell your business. And I got that great sales training and I spent like, 10 years selling and designing computer systems, not really much different than what I do today in outsourcing payment processing work. The other thing that, that I realized was that I wasn't an expert on HR, I wasn't an expert on even you know opening mail. The first customer we had, the first day we processed, my partner ran the transports that ran the coupons and checks and, and I opened the mail. And there was this tub of mail and there was so much mail in there. I thought, okay, this is a lot of mail. And so let me, let me try to open this on our new mail opening machines. And I was not very good at it. And so I actually lost a couple of payments. It seemed like I lost a couple of payments that first day. So I decided, Hey, let's go out and get people that actually know what they're doing. And so in every sort of step of the way, I was not the subject matter expert. So in HR, in accounting, in IT, in application development, I just went out and got the best people I could possibly find and brought those folks in. You know, I wasn't an MBA, but we certainly hired some MBAs in order to help us grow our business. So I think that's one way that maybe is different than others. You know, a lot of times if you're a plumber, you'll go out and say, Hey, I can run a business and you go out and plumb all the day, all day long and then come back and try to do your accounting and then, you know, figure out that you're not really an accountant and you can only grow your business as much as you can go out and plumb that day. So I think it's super important to just go out and get team members in those areas of expertise that you need to run a business and then let them do that work and then have you continue to step up in the organization and grow your business. And and that's what we've done. The other thing that was very important for us and for me was I knew that businesses fail in the first two years and particularly for a couple of reasons. One, they don't pay their taxes and two, they can't get paid from from the folks they do work for. So the only kind of business I was going to start was a business where people had to pay me, and they had to pay me on a regular basis, and hopefully sooner than most people. That was one thing I learned at Unisys was called DSO days outstanding. How many days outstanding was your ARs? And thirty days outstanding was great for uh, a major computer company, and I always got my people to pay uh, because I didn't get paid until they paid part of my my commission. So I wanted to run a business where people were gonna were gonna pay you, and I knew that businesses like maybe janitorial and some other businesses, you go and do the work, and then you could be 60, 90, 120 days out before people paid, if they paid. And people always had these outstanding ARs that they had to write off. So I knew in the payment processing business that people wanted to get their money. And then if it was important for them to get their money, that they would pay for it. And so I always have the ability to stop processing. So, hey, if you haven't paid me, I just stop processing and you don't get your money. So it makes it a pretty easy equation for people to say, Oh, okay, you're gonna deposit a million dollars today to me and, and I owe you ten thousand, I'll pay you that. <laughs> so pretty easy. But those are those are I think important things to think about. You know, how are you gonna get paid? When are you gonna get paid? And then our terms are net ten days, right? Because I've been processing for thirty days prior to someone paying me for that work. And that means I've already paid my employees, I've already paid for all the lights being on. So you gotta pay me, really it's 40 days, but I call it net, we call it net 10 days and folks tend to pay us on time. We have never in the entire 27 years of retail lockbox had a bad debt where someone didn't pay us. So that's pretty incredible. We don't do any factoring, we don't do any of that kind of stuff because people pay us the money
0: that they owe us. Very good. So you've really been involved in the community, Craig, and some of the highlights, as I mentioned earlier, were the Washington Roundtable as chair and the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, Seattle Branch, Tabor 100, and most recently, the Washington Employers for Racial Equity. Can you tell us a little bit more about the last one? Sure. So the Washington Employers for Racial Equity was
1: announced on December 1st. It was the culmination of work done by the Washington Roundtable and the Washington Roundtable is a group of the largest 50 businesses in the state, folks like Boeing and Nordstrom and Microsoft and Amazon and those 50 businesses. And I'm, I'm the current chair, I'm the first black chair, and I'm the first small business chair. So I'm not one of the, the largest 50, but we are in the small business category. So they have tapped me to uh, help lead that organization. And so back in, I guess, just before midsummer when George Floyd was shot, Our president, uh, Steve Mullins sort of came to the executive team and said, the executive board, and said, what should our response be? And he said, hey, I'm going to go out and talk to a number of other business organizations around the country and see what their response is. And most of them said, hey, we're going to put out a statement saying we stand by black people. We stand by Black Lives Matters we um, are gonna go on a listening tour, we're gonna give some money to some of these organizations and then in three or four months we'll decide what the best option was. And so, you know, I just said, you know, if you haven't been thinking about this for the last 30 years, three month listening tour is not gonna get it done. And that's basically what gets done all the time. You go on these listening tours, you say you're gonna do these things, you make these big edicts and proclamations and then, you know, a couple months later, whatever happens blows away and then nothing, nothing really changes. So, you know, I've sort of put together a framework, if you will, for what the Washington Roundtable might do. Steve started working with Challenge Seattle, which is about 17 of the largest organizations. And there's some overlap between the Washington Roundtable and Challenge Seattle but that's loved by Governor Christine Gregoire. And so the two of them basically said, hey, we've got to have a response. And they brought in Boston Consulting Group to do a, really it was supposed to be a four-week study, but it turned out to be a 12-week study on what was the current plight of black Washingtonians? Where do they stand? And so there were some stark findings with that work. We found that blacks at childbirth are 1.8 times more likely to die. That black mother is multiple times more likely to die at childbirth. We found that obviously, again, infant mortality rate was higher, we found that educational attainment levels were lower for blacks than for white students. We found that health outcomes were worse. We found that the net worth of a black family was $17,000 in comparison to a white family, which was $172,000, and that's a 10 times Multiple. We found that a black family, which head of household, which is a woman, which is about 64% or 66% of black families, their net worth was zero. We found that uh, health outcomes, whether it be diabetes or heart attack or AIDS, whatever, are worse, much worse. We found that incarceration was five or six times higher for blacks. And we found that the wealth gap, changing the actual generational wealth when you inherit money, that blacks were so far below the white population that the charts that they showed couldn't even show the magnitude. And then we, we found that home ownership in the state of Washington was, for blacks, was worse today than it was in 1968 at about 44%. So this Washington Employers for Racial Equity, basically the outcome was, of the findings was, these group of CEOs came together and said, we have to use our clout to actually make a change. We need to bring about racial equity. We've been saying this for 40 or 50 years when Dr. King talked about we shall overcome and had the civil rights movement. But those were civil rights. Those were just like, hey, I can go and sit in the front of the bus. Hey, I can use this water fountain. But they really weren't talking about equity, right? So a black person making the same, not 74 cents on the dollar of what a white person makes, but I'm actually making the same as a white person. He I graduated from, the, from Seattle you the same day that you did with the same degree. And over our lifetimes, we're gonna make the same, right? And so the CEO said, there's a couple things that we can do as it relates to business. And we wanna make sure that we're hiring blacks that represent the population in the communities we serve. And that's really by county. We wanna make sure that we're buying our buying is from black firms, again, representative of the communities that we serve by county. We wanna make sure that our c suites and our boards are representative of blacks. We wanna make sure our educational system is graduating black students at a commensurate rate. And the Washington Roundtable has a uh, initiative for All Washingtonians regardless of color to have a credential and that's either a college degree or a degree from a technical school or some type of credential by the time they're 26 and we want to do that by 2030 and blacks were far behind that in making that that attainment and so wanting to make sure that there was an educational component where we're pushing black children ahead so they can take advantage of prosperity in Washington as well and so on December 1st Washington employers for racial equity was was announced with 59 large major firms that agreed to come aboard. There's been many more since then that have come aboard. And so now driving some really specific goals and the goals that I sort of talked about with hiring, goals about buying, goals about C-suite, goals about uh, education. And so that's what we're doing with Washington Employers for Racial Equity. So we've got a lot of work to do.
0: Great, that's a great development for our community and congratulations on your role in getting that rolling. So across all these different service activities, which do you feel like you've had the most impact on the community through?
1: I think just the most impact has been being a champion for black businesses, right? I mean, being a champion for generational wealth, being a champion for education. My mom was a was a principal. She was head of Head Start and, you know, a driving force in education. And she always said, hey, you've got to get a great education. And that's where... They can never take your education away from you, they can do everything else, but you will will never be able to take that education, what you've learned. And I think I've always started there. I think it starts with education. Obviously, getting that college degree—it was never sort of, "Hey, are you going to college?" It was just, you know, sort of, "Where are you going?" and, "And what are you gonna? What are you gonna get your degree?" And for me, business was always <laughs> what I was gonna do. So <laughs> it was—it was pretty easy for me. But you know, I also had to make sure I was smart enough to be able to get into the business school and. And work hard enough, I told my kids the other day, you know, I I never missed a day of of school. (laughs) I never, I never played hooky one day and, you know, because I knew I had to. I knew that for me, for where I was coming from, being a black person, you gotta be better than the rest. And so I, I didn't have time to take those days off. And so I just, you know, hope to look at that as a role model for kids that are coming up today. And, you know, just being a champion, I think, for Education, a champion for black business, a champion for generational wealth. And that's why I talk about one of the things for your students is think about driving and building that wealth early on, right? Because you'll be a millionaire before, before you know it. And then there's lots of things that you can do for the community, but you can't do anything without money, right? And this is America. You can't do anything without commerce, without having money. And we shouldn't, in our community, we shouldn't be waiting for these large corporations to come in and give us a handout and be a charitable contribution. We should have people that are rich enough in our own community that we can drive our own agendas, that we can drive things that make sense for our own people. Those are the things that I'm sort of most proud of, but also the things that I think are really important that I stand for.
0: And let me hasten to add that your mother is a distinguished alumna of Seattle University.
1: Yes, she is. Yes, she is. She got her master's, absolutely, in education.
0: Very proud of yeah. that, we are.
1: Yes, absolutely. We have and have had a lot of Seattle U uh, students work here and, and alumni. So, definitely a rich pool that we want to continue to pull from.
0: So, Craig, last question we have for you today is what do you think today's biggest challenge for business leaders is? And how are you approaching that issue as a business leader? I think the biggest
1: challenge is change, right? I mean, there's, there's no question that we had some unexpected surprises in 2020, some unexpected surprises in early 2021 as it relates to our union, our country. And that's the hardest thing. I think as a business leader, you have to be able to look around the corner, you have to be able to see what's coming, and then you have to build those products and services that you can run across all of your customers and then be able to garner those new revenue streams, right? I mean, we know that old revenue streams, while they're great, that they're gonna run out sometimes. And sometimes you have to go in and slice and dice and kill those old revenue streams in order to make new ones because the new ones will be the ones that are lasting. And then after you do that, you've gotta go find those, again, new and improved ones. Cause that's that's what keeps a business going. That's what keeps business in general going. If you're stuck in a product like a Blockbuster video who had a chance to buy Netflix and said, no, hey, we don't see that as a future. This will never happen. How are you ever gonna be able to watch videos on the internet and how you're going to be able to stop and rewind. And we're going to stick with this technology very quickly. They were out of date and they were a dinosaur. And, and uh, you know, there's one blockbuster left down in Bend, Oregon. Now that's a, a relic. So I, I think you've got to be able to look around the corner and it's really hard. It's not about what's the fad today. It's about what that new trend is. Right? What are the trends that we're seeing today based on our environment, based on the economy, based on what customers are wanting, right? And so it's pretty tricky. I mean, lots of companies that were, you know, in the Fortune 500 25 years ago are no longer there because they didn't look around the corner. You know, Kodak, I mean, it's there in name, but it's certainly not there and bought by somebody else. Uh, Tupperware, other tons of firms, Radio Shack, tons of firms that didn't look around the corner and see the future and didn't adapt their business model to what is coming today and I, it's maybe a fairly cliche answer but I think that that's really really important you have to create new sustainable profitable revenue streams and that's looking around the corner and seeing in the future
0: great thank you so much for being with us today Craig Dawson it's been a great pleasure to be chatting with you and appreciate your answers and we look forward to getting these out to our students and our alumni so they can benefit from your wisdom and your experience So appreciate so much coming in. Dean Phillips, thanks so much
1: for having me. I'm looking forward to listening to this and also having more of your alum come work at Retail Lockbox.
0: Sounds like a great deal. Okay. See you, Joe. Thanks. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albert School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.